By the time they were ready to push the switch and let it blow, they had loaded seven and a half tons of dynamite into these 20 holes. And when it went off, it took down 60,000 tons of limestone, shot it over 400 feet in places. You're listening to a special highlights edition of the Historian's Podcast. That was Dana Cudmore with the start of our 500th episode about Dana's new book, Farming with Dynamite, which explains how in Schoharie County, uh, the struggling farmers in the latter days of the 1800s harvested stone, really, uh, from their nearby fields, and the stone was used in construction projects like uh, some parts of the uh, Brooklyn Bridge and other public buildings. Dana Cudmore, as you probably noticed, has the same last name that I do. We aren't actually related, but we've talked with Dana in the past on the subject of caving. Uh, Dana Cudmore, also an authority on exploring caves, maybe in particular how caverns in Schoharie County. On this uh, Historian's Podcast Highlights Edition, uh, we're going to have about 11 uh, excerpts from uh, recent uh, productions, all kind of in the in the 500s as we advance into uh, 2024. Next, uh, for your consideration, uh, is the story of Levittown. Levittown was a suburb which was mass-produced in uh, Long Island, uh, which became one of New York State's uh, great suburbs. And uh, Tim Keogh, a college professor at one of the community colleges on Long Island, uh, talked about Levittown in his podcast, in particular uh, the problems faced by the uh, poor people, uh, people that were uh, disadvantaged, if you will, uh, had in uh, getting space to live in Levittown. Uh, They were not allowed, uh, they being the poor uh, African-Americans as a group, were were not allowed to purchase uh, any of the homes in uh, Levittown. Before you say, oh, that is terrible, and it is terrible, I think. But that was the way American real estate was until relatively recently. Here's Tim Keogh talking about Levittown. The idea was to kind of create elder care, to create daycare programs, public works, you know, parks, and to help people have a job that was paid at a good a living wage, and every county resident would be guaranteed it. And it was an experiment, and unfortunately when Lyndon Johnson left office and Richard Nixon came in, he eventually cut the program. That's kind of the conclusion they came to in suburbs, like, oh, we can't solve poverty by just training people. We actually have to provide them work, you know, the, the actual you know, a demand, something for them to do. That's Professor Tim Keogh, author of a book about Levittown, the suburb on Long Island. Benedict Arnold has become a sort of major topic in American revolutionary history recently. We all know that Benedict Arnold uh, tried to betray his country by giving Great Britain the um, maps and uh, fortification plans of West Point, which at the time was an important military point on uh, the Hudson River. The plan was foiled. Uh, Arnold went and fought for the British for the rest of the war 
ended up uh, uh, dying not in the United States. Uh, and there's a new book about uh, Benedict Arnold, uh, which is written by a very colorful writer from upstate New York, a man named Jack Kelly. What do you mean by the title, God Save Benedict Arnold? Well, I have a little story, uh, a, kind of a historical what-if in the book as to what if Benedict Arnold, who, who wanted to serve in the American Navy and, and was never given the opportunity, that if he had been in the Navy, he might have uh, uh, not had these moments of idleness that turned into treason, and he would have been uh, a hero, and uh, we would have been saying, God save America, but God save Benedict Arnold. I think it's also a, a, the idea that it, he was a hero, he was a, a villain, and uh, leave the judgment to others and just look at who he was. So uh, that's why I said, uh, let God sort it out. That's Jack Kelly, author of the relatively new book, God Save Benedict Arnold. Another take on the American Revolutionary War, a look at the Im importance of the war, uh, came from a distinguished scholar uh, this past year that we turned into podcast episode number 503, a man named Jack Warren, whose uh, book about the revolution is entitled Freedom. You know, a leader without followers is just somebody out taking a walk. Leaders grasp movements, aspirations, desires of of many people. They don't necessarily dictate what people think. They embody the aspirations of ordinary people. What I want my readers to understand, what I want Americans to understand about the revolution is its real richness. That's the distinguished Revolutionary War scholar Jack Warren talking about his book Freedom, episode 503 of the Historian's Podcast. You can hear the whole podcast on our website, bobcudmore.com. In fact, you can hear all of the excerpts that we're talking about in uh, this episode, and uh, which we call a highlights episode. You can hear the full uh, podcast on bobcudmore.com and our other uh, platforms, which have information on the uh, uh, Historian's Podcast. Moving on... We come to Amy Goodine. Amy Goodine uh, writes about the Adirondacks, and she has a new book out which has to do with the lead-up uh, to the Civil War when certain wealthy white people uh, donated money so that African Americans could buy land in the Adirondacks. Uh, her uh, book is titled Black Woods. Her name is Amy Goodine. Uh, she uh, is heard on episode 504 of the Historian's Podcast. And keep in mind that New York State abolished slavery in 1827. It's a gradual abolition. It occurs in stages. This is to appease the pro-slavery lobby in New York. And by 1827, it is supposed to be at least entirely formally abolished. Of course, exceptions have been found where some people continued to live in bondage even after that date. But overwhelmingly, New York State, black people were emancipated before or at that date. So that's really our go-to date. And that is why in 1821, 
the New York State Constitutional Convention creates this voter restriction for black voters to inhibit their influence at the polls at the time when all black people are emancipated and then possibly eligible for the franchise. The pro-slavery lobby wants to curb this and hobble this at the outset. So they say some years before, well, even when you're emancipated, we're going to make it as tough as possible for you to exercise the vote and become full citizens because that's how much we dread your input at the polls. That's Amy Gadeen talking about her book, Black Woods, which deals with African-Americans in the Adirondack Mountains. Now we come to the Civil War. Uh, in the recent months, we've had a couple of uh, interviews about Civil War regiments. The North raised volunteer regiments with President uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, seeking volunteers around the country. And one of the uh, regiments that was raised in that fashion was the 77th New York, uh, which was based in Saratoga County. Chris Carolla, for many years a reporter for Associated Press, uh, talked about how that regiment came to be and became involved in conflict in 1862. And in the spring of 1862, the real fighting started kicking in. 77th was part of what was known as the Army of the Potomac, meaning the Potomac River, tens of thousands strong, and they were their goal was to capture Richmond, And but a, a West Point graduate and former West Point superintendent by the name of Robert E. Lee, he'd have something to say about that. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Chris Carolla to the program. He's joined us a number of times. And he's going to talk about a topic from the Civil War, one of the volunteer regiments. In fact, it's the 77th volunteer regiment that came from New York State, which was based in Saratoga County and some other neighboring counties. And to throw in our history mystery at the beginning, why do you suppose the used the numbers 77 uh, for the infantry regiment that was uh, raised in the Saratoga area. Was it because that was the number of people uh, that originally signed up with 77? Was it because there were 77 communities uh, in the three-county area that would uh, send soldiers uh, to, this, to the war through this uh, regiment? Well, no. Uh, Chris, why did they name it uh, the 77th? Uh, well, Bob, uh, during the Civil War, the practice in the northern states was when these regiments were formed, they designated the regiment number in chronological order that they applied uh, to have these regiments um, made part of the Union Army. So in New York State at the time, uh, they had 44 regiments that were already been entered into the Union Army or, or were in the process. And when uh, Saratoga County, when the 77th applied uh, their regiment for, for their regiment, they made a special request to the governor of New York State. They wanted to be known as the 77th, not the 45th, which was the next number available. And they wanted to be the 77th in honor of the Battles of Saratoga, but they fought during the Revolution, which were fought in September and October of 1777. And the governor uh, signed off on that. That's Chris Carolla talking about the 77th New York Volunteers in the Civil War. There was also a regiment that was raised from 
Fulton, Montgomery, Saratoga, Hamilton, and uh, some other counties in our area, which was the 495th. Uh, this was uh, the subject of a podcast and an interview with David Brooks uh, wearing the hat of being a board member for the uh, Fulton County History Museum, which is uh, up in Gloversville. The 115th uh, had a long and, and bloody experience uh, during the American Civil War. They fought battles in Florida, uh, which was not one of the major battlefields, but it was major in terms of the losses they sustained. Uh, David Brooks talked about how many uh, people died uh, at, who were members of the 115th New York Volunteers. The war is moving toward an end. What was the outcome for the 115th? I mean, how many losses did they uh, suffer uh, during the war? There winds up being a few eras in which you have the original thousand or so in the regiment, and there are recruits that are brought in by 63 and again in 54 as replacement troops. So there's nearly 1,200 altogether that will fight in the 115th and killed in, in action. You have about 300 of those that won't come back. Uh, you have a couple hundred that will die of diseases several hundred with, with severe wounds that, uh, you know, put them on a disability list for the rest of the war or they return home. That's David Brooks, who has done research on the 115th New York Volunteers in the Civil War. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast, a special highlights edition. We're taking a look at episodes that uh, were aired on uh, Historian's Podcast toward the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024. And, just in the interest of variety, uh, let's put in one of my columns from the Daily Gazette. Every Saturday, I write Focus on History, which is about Montgomery and Fulton County uh, and stories uh, about that place that uh, is very familiar to me. And it's been in the paper for uh, decades. And one of the more recent uh, columns relied on uh, research done uh, by a real fan of local history, a man named Emil Suda. And he here it is. Two smart men from the Mohawk Valley. Amsterdam's Bill Hojan was very smart, according to his longtime friends. Local history fan Emil Suda, that's Emil Suda, uh, said William Walter Hojan was born in Amsterdam in 1906 and died at age 80 in 1987. He was survived by two sons, William Jr. and Richard. Suda said, quote, a tall, thin, lanky man with glasses. Bill had a fantastic career in electronics as he was a genius in the field, working for General Electric in Schenectady, then the federal government at White Sands Proving Grounds. He then came closer to home at the Rome Air Force Base, later called Griffiths, doing radar work. He ended his career working in Amsterdam at Electrometrics Corporation. All these places of employment were ongoing, 
while he maintained a radio repair shop in Amsterdam on weekends, first out of his home, followed by opening an actual shop on East Main Street, 222 East Main, in 1941. By the 1950s, television was coming into demand, and Bill expanded into that market, not just repairing sets, but even installing antennas on roofs. Hojan also had a passion for model trains. Suda continued, the electric train hobby was very popular, and this is where Bill's passion went, not with the tin plate models of Lionel or Gilbert American Flyer, but with the scale HO lines. This is where Bill reached out to service the needs of those who purchased model trains. He aligned himself as an authorized repair center for the Lionel and American Flyer brands. In Amsterdam, a few stores sold electric trains at the Christmas time, but none compared to what the Johnny Larrabee hardware store could offer, and those repairs kept Bill busy. There was a special shop that Bill Hojan maintained, according to Suda. Quote, Bill's most remembered and iconic location was his move to Nine Grove Street in 1955, directly behind the Niagara Mohawk building on Market Street. Over the wooden door with a glass window hung a painted yellow metal sign reading the radio workshop, dressed off with two lightning bolts. Up on the second floor, one was greeted by a fairly large L-shaped model train empire, about 20 feet in length, in scale HO, that sadly never got completed. Urban renewal in Amsterdam in the uh, early 70s forced Bill Hojan to move and retire. Emil Suda thanks uh, Jerry Snyder of Historic Amsterdam League for providing information for this article from microfilm copies of the Amsterdam Recorder. But wait, uh, there's more to this focus on history story, a section called Email Man. When computer programmer Raymond Samuel Tomlinson died at age 74 in 2016 in Lincoln, Massachusetts, news stories around the world noted his roots in Amsterdam, Vale Mills, and Broad Alban. At his death from a suspected heart attack, Tomlinson was the principal engineer for Raytheon. He's credited with sending the first email message between two separate computers in 1971 and making the decision to use the at sign, the at sign, to separate the sender's name from the sender's internet address, such as in Bob Cudmore at yahoo.com. Born in Amsterdam in 1941, Ray Tomlinson was the son of Ray and Dorothy Tomlinson, who lived near the village of Broad Alban in Vale Mills, a hamlet in the town of Mayfield. We knew he was smart, but had no idea 
How smart, said Samuel Tom Tomlinson, one of Ray's cousins. Tom said that for Ray, school was a breeze. Ray was valedictorian of the class of 1959 at Broad Alban. The class had 45 students. Ray's girlfriend in high school was Barbara Anderson. Anderson told the that the young man came up with a concoction of wires and things that enabled her to talk with him while not interfering with their family's business phone at the popular Turkey Farm, more properly called the White Holland House Restaurant on Route 29. And that's the story from Focus on History of Bill Hojohn and Ray Tomlinson, two smart men from the Mohawk Valley. You can read my Focus on History column every Saturday in the Daily Gazette. We certainly welcome your ideas for uh, the Focus on History. You can uh, send information to me via email, Bob Cudmore at yahoo.com. This is the Highlights Edition of Historian's Podcast. Remember, you can listen to all of these podcasts in their entirety uh, by going to our main website, which is bobcudmore.com, and that's also where you can go to make contributions to the 2024 fundraising campaign. We're going to endeavor to raise $6,000 this year for Historian's Podcast. We do have a long way to go now, but we do have a a nice donation that came in from our good friend John Loriello, Amsterdam native who supports a number of causes in the Amsterdam area. And I'm happy to say uh, one of those causes is uh, the Historian's Podcast and My History Endeavors. Our next uh, interview, this is a podcast that was episode number 507 about the exploration of an Antarctic region uh, that was called by the author the Mighty Badlands. It was really named Marie Birdland after the wife of the uh, famous Antarctic explorer. Bruce Leyendyke is the man that... Uh, that we talked with about this uh, endeavor, which took place decades ago, and he's just uh, written a book about it. He said it took that long to, A, learn how to write, and B, uh, process the information. First off, uh, Bruce is a professor, a professor at one of the California universities, and his specialty uh, is a geology and he was looking for a lost continent, which, in a sense, he found underneath the, the waters of Antarctica uh, called Zealandia, or that's what he, he named the lost continent. But the place that he and his rather small uh, investigative team went was uh, out in the, well, to say it's out in the middle of nowhere. It was out where people had never been before. Uh, and he was taken there uh, by uh, soldiers who serve at the Schenectady Air Base in the 109th uh, Air Guard, and also, I believe, the U.S. Navy's involved. Uh, here's Bruce Leyendyke talking about uh, being alone on the ice. 
basically none of us had been there uh, to where we landed. As a matter of fact, the Navy had planes that had not been there either. We were all sitting out there in the middle of what's called the deep field. That's the type of expedition, a deep field expedition, is the type of expedition that's beyond a, a helicopter rescue range. If you get in trouble, you're on your own, and you have to wait for a weather window so Hercules can come out and take care of you. That's Professor Bruce Lyondike, author of a book about exploring the Antarctic. A new highlights edition would be complete without some contribution from our good friend David Petruja, author who lives in Amsterdam, New York. His latest book is about gangsters. What's a badger game? A badger game is, so uh, you're visiting the city. You're uh, in a hotel room. You're with a woman who's not your wife. All of a sudden, a bunch of guys burst in. They may or may not claim to be police. They definitely aren't police, unless they're very crooked police, mm -hmm. and they're going to blackmail you. This is David Katrusha, author of the new book, Gangsterland, A Tour Through the Dark Heart of Jazz Age New York City. And it's uh, published by Diversion Books down there in the heart of New York City, in the heart of uh, Times Square. And this book focuses on... Oh, anything from the teens into the early 1930s, centering on the Prohibition era and all those speakeasies and jazz and the era of wonderful nonsense and the era of a lot of not wonderful things, including robberies and arson and murder and fraud and things of, of that nature. That's David Petruja, who was born in Amsterdam, New York, and I said a moment or two ago that he still lives there. He does, and he lives near Amsterdam in the town of Glenville. Our final excerpt on this Historian's Podcast Highlights Edition comes from a very interesting uh, gentleman uh, named Jerry Madden, who lives in Washington, D.C., but he's uh, from Steubenville, Ohio which was Dean Martin's hometown, among other things. But uh, Steubenville, Ohio, is one of several steel valleys in the United States, places where the mills moved out. Uh, we're familiar with that uh, scenario here in upstate New York and uh, products ranging from carpets and rugs to electronics to uh, gloves and uh, tanning of uh, leather. And in Ohio and Pennsylvania, there are sections that are used to the steel mills closing down, uh, causing a great deal of uh, economic uncertainty. Here is Jerry Madden. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that this is not just a story about Steubenville, Ohio. This is a story about America and all these towns like Steubenville and the town you're talking about, were very vibrant and important cities for the country. And they're all gone now. And uh, for example, I was playing golf with a, with a person about a year ago, and I was, I was writing a book, and he started talking about his life in Kansas, and he said, oh, we had the exact same town. We, you know, we had dust systems, we had department stores, and all this sort of thing. It's all gone, it's all closed. 
And so it's just amazing when you really talk to people about how they have very similar experiences. And you know, when I think about when I think about the political uncertainty in the United States today mm-hmm. and the polarization, it, it remind I, I it, to me it really has a root cause in, in offshoring all of our basic industries. That's Jerry Madden, author of the historical novel Steel Valley. Thank you for listening to this Historian's Podcast Highlights Edition. The Historian's Podcast is produced by Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>